Uh, those guys and gals up there love you guys a ton. Uh, folks sitting in that back room love you guys a ton and want you to know how good God is. And so they uh, dedicate countless hours each week to uh, preparing that music, to learning on the piano. Our musicians constantly learning. We've got, we're so blessed to have musicians from uh, high school students all the way up to um, adults, and we love it. And coming in here on Wednesdays and trying to figure out uh, the soundboard so that you can better hear what I'm saying, people um, giving up lots of time in order to make sure uh, that you might hear God's word rightly preached and, and that it might change you the way it's changed us. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Uh, we are slowly working our way through uh, this uh, book, Hebrews. It's at the end of the Bible, like 95% of the way through the Bible. So if you go all the, all the way to the back, Revelation, and come back to the left, you'll find it pretty quickly. Uh, Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 2. And we've made it through um, five verses in five weeks. Uh, and so I'm going to skip verses 6 to 13. 6 to 14. I'm not actually skipping them. I've preached them uh, in uh, survey, and I'm just not going to dive into them individually just yet. We're going to go to chapter 2 and read uh, the first four verses right here. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, read these words with me. Um, I'll read them out loud. You can read them with your eyes. The Bible says this. It says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This too is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Uh, friends, I've grown up around boats almost my entire life. Some of my first memories are climbing around my granddaddy's boats. And my granddaddy was a, a poor machinist and he never could afford a boat. And so he would resurrect them out of graveyards. He would go find one at the dump, bring it home, rebuild the motor, refiberglass it, and then put it on the water. And he taught my uncles how to do it, and he taught my uncles how to fish, and they passed that bug along to me. And so I've been running a boat for a good long time, but my mom never learned any of this. My mom can't run a boat to save her life. But a little while ago, we all decided we would go in and buy a boat, and mom decided she had to learn to drive it. She just had to figure that out. And so we're at vacation at the beach. We go out to a really nice dinner. We're wearing that one outfit you take on vacation. You know, the one that's like, you can actually wear it off the beach to a restaurant. And I had that on, and I'm dressed as nice as I've got. And we're there. We're at dinner, and mom says, when we get home, you're going to teach me how to take the boat off the dock. And I was like, all right, mom, it's really easy. You don't even have to start the motor. I can show you how to do it. It'll be a piece of cake. So we get back and I show mom how you, I'm like, mom, you just untie the front of the boat right here and you can push it out into the current and the current will actually swing it around. And as the boat gets to about 70, 90 degrees, go ahead and untie the back of it and just step on the swim platform and walk to the steering wheel and crank it and you can go. I'm doing this as I'm telling her in my Sunday best. I, I untie the front, I push it out, I walk to the back, the boat's nice, beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's perfect, and I untie the back, and I step on it, and I walk out, and I'm feeling victorious, and I'm like, look, mom, I didn't even crank the boat, you can do this with the eyes closed, and I grab the steering wheel, and I reach down to turn the key, there's no key on the boat, 
And I'm drifting down the canal between hundreds of thousands of dollars of boats and docks in our brand new boat. And it's only a matter of time before I run into something. I mean, we're, I've got the boat headed straight and I can use the motor as a rudder, but I've got to get back up current somehow. And so I do, I, I'm trying to think, can she get the key, get to me? How are we going to do this? And mom's like, you're going to, in that moment, I decided the only thing I can do is I'm going to have to swim this boat back to the dock. But I'm in my Sunday best. And so I get ready to jump in. Mom's like, you can't get those clothes wet and dirty. <laughs> so I have to do what any good teenage kid does and strip down to my skivvies and grab a rope and pull it up the dock in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the canal. Thank God it was nighttime. And we get back because I had a problem. We were drifting. I was going down the middle with no power. And the message of this scripture brings that memory to mind as I drift down ready to wreck, sliding past dock after dock with no power and no steering. Because the preacher here is telling us uh, to pay careful attention to what we've heard from Jesus and about Jesus so that we do not drift away from the safe harbor of salvation and out into destruction and damnation. The author is using uh, several words to bring this picture to mind of a boat trying to come into safe harbor. He uses two verbs, both with naval overtones. The first, your Bible probably translates something like pay the most careful attention or be very careful, something along Along those lines. The verb there in Greek is a, a word uh, called prosecco, not the bubbly wine, but a Greek word that means to hold fast. Um, it, it means to be aware, to pay careful attention to, uh, to give your full, um, your full uh, attention to it. Jesus uses this word eight times in the gospels and every time it means to be aware, look lively, step to it. Because spiritual danger is hiding in the most unsuspecting places. But this word is also commonly used in Greek to describe anchoring a boat in a safe harbor or mooring it to a good dock. It is the word that we could use to, to hold fast, um, to, to, to secure a boat to a safe place. And the other verb, the next verb that we see um, that, that, that comes up is this word for to drift away. You see it at the end of verse one. It says, so that we do not drift away. In Greek, the word is parahuo, which means to slip past or to drift past a dock or a harbor or an anchor. It's the word that you would use to describe a boat that gets caught in the current and just misses a dock or if... Uh, it misses its landing and is swept back out into the storm and lost. If it misses the harbor mouth and gets swept back out to sea or dashed against the rocks. It's a word that uh, means this so much that it eventually takes on a figurative meaning to just say, I am lost. All is lost. All hope is lost. I have missed the last safe house, the last safe harbor and the great picture presented to us in this first sentence, in these two verbs, is that of a ship needing to find a safe harbor in a hurry. But there's grave danger of missing the only harbor around and being swept out into the hurricane and lost. Even country singers know uh, that every life is like a river. Every life is going somewhere. Every life is a ship and there is a storm. There are dangerous currents and everything looks okay until it's too late. But there is a harbor, a hurricane hole, a safe place, a narrow mouth uh, with huge protective seawalls. 
what the Bible calls paradise. And we are told to hold fast to what we have heard, to anchor your soul in the harbor of truth, to give it your full attention, to wrap your brain around it and to set your heart upon it, to order your actions by it and lest you drift away. And so we will see as we work through this that we're gonna have three really simple applications over and over again. The first is that there are people in this world, there are people in this room have not found the harbor. That harbor is Jesus and his teachings and you can put your life on him. You can trust him. You can attend, You can make for that harbor now. You can rest in him. You can find him and, and rest secure there. But if you do not, if you put off, if you wait, if you push off, there is no other harbor And the currents are strong and the reef are treacherous. And they're hidden. For believers, we'll see two observations. The first is that the anchor is is for us to hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus' teaching. To give it our full attention. To play close attention to it. To set our lives upon it. As Jesus said, to build our life on the rock. As Hebrews will say later, that we have this hope as an anchor in heaven for our souls. And that brings me to my third point. And I just want to make this at the beginning because I know for some of you, that line of anchor for your soul rings a bit hollow. You see, I've walked through some crazy stuff for the last year. It's the hardest seasons of my entire life. And there have been moments where I was angry at Jesus saying, Jesus, I've built my life on you. Where are you at? Because my life is going crazy and I feel like we're going to shipwreck. And Jesus called to mind a story from last October when I took, um, for those of you who don't know, I was uh, fostering uh, two boys, John and Shay, and I have a bio son, Jack, and we went out and we're on our boat and we're fishing. And I have John and Shay on the boat with me and we set the anchor and we go to fishing and I put the anchor down and we're sitting there for about five minutes. And, and Shay, my seven-year-old says, Andrew, the, the boat's moving. And so I kind of look up and I stare and I'm like, no, we hadn't moved. We're still in the same place. That dock is still right there. Those rocks are still right here. And we sit there and it's like, no, the boat's moving. And I'm like, it's okay. I, I checked the anchor's still holding. We're good. And we sit there and I fish a few more times and I'm helping cast and bait hooks. And he says, no, the, 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 the boat is moving. I look, the dock's still the same distance away. The rocks are still distance away. The channel markers are still distance away. And it hits me. Boat's moving up and down. It's rocking side to side. And it feels scary to this little boy because he thinks that an anchor is to make it like solid ground. And I realize that the whole time I'm complaining to Jesus that this anchor ain't working, he's saying, Look, I know the boat's moving up and down, but you're safe. I've got you far enough away from any real danger. You're okay. This may rock. The boat is moving. It's moving up and down, but it's not moving side to side. You're safe. You can make it. Trust me. You're okay. And so for you, believer, who feels like your anchor isn't holding the boat, the waves may be big, the current may be strong, but the anchor holds. Don't worry if the boat's going up or down. Just stay in the boat. 
So let's work through this. It says every life is going somewhere. And so the first question I have to ask you is where is your life going? Where are you headed? You see, one of the truest things that I've ever heard is that your direction determines your destination, not your desire. You can want to go to Maine with every fiber in your being, but if you drive south on I-95, you will never get there. And some of you want, you want to change. You want to follow Jesus. You want to to build your life on Jesus. But are you trending in the right direction? Look at the scope of your life. Where has your life been heading? Are your habits getting better or worse? Is your affection for Jesus growing or numbing? Is your marriage trending up or down? Is your work habits sustainable or are they burning you out? Because your direction extrapolated out into the future is where you will be five years from now, six years from now, 10 years from now, and it doesn't matter how bad you hate that place. If you point your boat that way, that's where you will go, even if you don't want to. So we've got to take stock of our lives. We have to look at our lives because every life is going somewhere. If you look at your spending habits and your time habits and your relationships, and you extrapolate the last five years out another 10 years, is that where you wanna be? Is that the harbor you're hoping for? That's where we're, every life's going somewhere. And so the next question I have to ask is, where are you getting your heading? Where are you getting your heading? And here I was reminded of something that I've just been learning about recently, that every one of us needs a rudder. Not a rudder that you, not a rudder that you steer by, but a rudder that you guide by. You see, before the invention of navigational charts and nautical maps, uh, safely navigating from one place to another depended on handwritten information handwritten directions with a heading and a distance and a description of the place you were going. And this would be written down in a book and passed from boat pilot to boat pilot. It was called a rutter, R-U-T-T-E-R. There was no GPS or Loran. It was just, you looked at it, you said head at zero degrees for 300 nautical miles and then veer to 20 degrees for another 200 nautical miles. And then the harbor will shape like this. These handbooks contained a wealth of information. They contained uh, detailed physical descriptions of shorelines and harbors and islands and channels. And they had notes about the tides. They had notes about the landmarks there. They described where the reefs were, where the shoals were. They described um, if there was a difficult entry and you had to make an entry into harbor a particular way, it would be described there. The exact maneuvers you would have to make to keep yourself um, out of trouble. They described calendars, what the seasons did to the way the water moved in certain places when there were giant squalls and storms and tsunamis. And they also um, gave you astronomical tables and mathematical tables. They gave you all you could possibly uh, need to get to a place. And these rudders depended on firsthand experience and observation. They were written by someone who had been where that ship wanted to go. They were dependent upon personal testimony and experience because someone who had been there before recorded all their information to ensure that you could get there safely. 
And so these books, these rudders, R-U-T-T-E-R, rudders were guarded ferociously because they held the keys to national security. These gave military pilots the way to come into port, into navigational, um, into the the naval yards. You can imagine how important one of these would be for like a German U-boat. Um, to be able to know exactly how to sneak past uh, defenses. In the the time of uh, when the Europeans were starting to expand into the Americas and the Asia, the Portuguese and the Spaniards uh, got there first. And they were able to keep the English and the Dutch out of Asia for over 100 years by guarding the rudders that guided ships around South Africa or around Argentina. 100 years they kept these handwritten books safe and secure. On the other hand, the English and the Dutch were desperate to capture one of these books. And so they resorted to pirating, trying to to commandeer uh, Spanish ships, uh, trying to uh, torture Spanish pilots and and Portuguese because they believed the legends of cities of gold and wealth unimaginable in the Americas and in, uh, in, in Asia. The promises of your wildest dreams drove men to all kinds of crazy things to steal others' ships' rudders. And honestly, if if we think about this, all of us are desperately looking for a rudder. We're all looking for someone to tell us how to navigate this life safely and successfully and hopefully lucratively. We look to people we think who have won at life or are winning at life to tell us how to do it. But there's only one who has successfully navigated this life. There is only one who has navigated humanity, won at life, navigated death, and come back. One who has arrived safely at the port on the other side. And that one is Jesus, who has been where we want to go, who knows what we need to know. And that's why chapter 2 starts off with this word, therefore. Therefore, it's a huge word in the Bible. And every time you see the word, therefore, you need to ask, what is the therefore? therefore in this case we have to remember everything we learned in chapter one and I'm not going to preach five sermons but if we just look at the first words of Hebrews chapter one we see that in these last days God has spoken to us by his son and we're reminded that God speaks as clearly as God can in Jesus that we don't need dreams or angel visitations Jesus has already spoken clearly And that Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. That God the Father trusts Jesus with absolutely everything. And so you and I can trust Jesus with everything we have. Namely, with our life. We can trust him. And we know we can trust him because God the Father trusts him. And we see that Jesus is through whom also uh, the universe was made. That Jesus made the universe and he knows exactly how it works. With his life and words, he is describing to you the way the universe was created. He is describing to you the very blueprints of reality. We see in verse 3 that the Son, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Jesus can show you not only the contours of creation, but the very contours of God's character. We see that Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when the waves get big, if he can sustain the stars and the planets, if he can sustain all of life, he can sustain you too. He can uphold you is what the Greek word. He can hold you up. 
And after he provided purification for sins, we see that Jesus has provided purification for sins. He has made provision for your sin. He has cleansed me from all guilt and condemnation. And he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he has the highest seat. If we're thinking about boats, he sits in the Marlin Tower where he has the best perspective. He is the one who can see better than anyone else. He's in the crow nest and he can, crow's nest and he can see all of history. He can see all things visible and invisible. He is in a better place than anyone else to navigate your life. Should you, should you look to angels to give you the information you need to get through life? No, because Jesus is higher than angels. That's what all of chapter one is building and crescendoing to, which is why we reject teachings like the teachings of Mormonism and Islam, which put the revelation of angels above the revelation of Jesus Christ. Should you look to Oprah or Bill O'Reilly or Glenn Beck? No, no, no. Should you look to Michael Jordan or Bill Gates or Bob Dylan? I mean, I love Bob Dylan, but no, no, no. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives us the rudder to life. Like Captain Jack Sparrow's compass, Jesus' teachings point us to the things our hearts most need and most desire. His teachings show us we can trust God and be in right relationship with God by faith. In his teaching, Jesus shows us the shoals to avoid, the reefs to steer clear of, and, the, and he promises to us immense rewards, incredible promises. Remember a minute ago, I told you that the English and the Dutch did everything they could to get copies of the Spanish and the Portuguese rudders because the Spanish rudders to Florida promised the fountain of youth and El Dorado and the Portuguese rudders to Asia promised Shangri-La. But Jesus' promises are greater still. And I want to outline them for you. Jesus says, if you are painstaking about following his way of life, if you are fully surrendered to his lordship, if the words we just sang a minute ago that Jesus you are my king are true and you follow his way of life then he promises you these things and this list was compiled by a man named John Ortberg who I really like and he says this is what Jesus promises that the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will purify us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have the mind of Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If any one of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. My grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. With God, all things are possible. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory and we're being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
You may have heard some of those words, each of those taken directly from scripture, just read to you in that translation. But you, sometimes I think we miss the effect of these, what they would believe, what they would do to our lives if they came true in our lives. And so I want you to hear them paraphrase this way in the words of John Ortberg, the exact same promises I just read to you from scripture. Now in the exact same sequence, but paraphrased into modern Englishes, into promises of what your life could be if you followed Jesus's rudder, if you paid careful attention to what you heard, if you held fast, if you stepped lively, our unsatisfied desires will cease to dominate us. Hurry and worry will begin to drop away. We recognize and we publicly confess our spiritual inadequacy with growing abandon and we cheer on others who do the same. A new inspiration will begin to guide our thought life. Shame and judgmentalism will gradually lose their grip on us. We will find ourselves making better decisions. Our weaknesses no longer torment us. We find a power greater than ourselves often at work in them. We are growing less easily irritated or discouraged. Money worries and selfishness fade while generosity grows. Our sense of identity and usefulness will deepen. We are becoming the people our mothers believed we could be. We will be increasingly filled with joyful dependence on our friend Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want those more. I want those more than Shangri-La and El Dorado. I want money worries to evaporate in my life. I want hurry and worry to drop away like old clothing. I want us as a congregation to be people who publicly confess our spiritual inadequacy and celebrate when others get honest and do the same, when our weaknesses no longer torment us, but we see how God is using even our weaknesses and our failures to make himself famous and to set other people in right relationship with him. I want us to grow less irritated and discouraged. I want my own sense of identity and usefulness to deepen, to have ballast in it so that it's not swayed to and fro by public opinion or the size of my bank account or the clothes on my body or the length of my hair. For that matter, the number of hairs on my head. Jesus' promises are what the Bible calls right here exceedingly great salvation. He calls it in verse th- 2 and then again in verse 5. If we ignore such a great salvation, this salvation, this great salvation, those promises is not just heaven when you die, but serenity now. To quote Seinfeld <laughs> by accident. Some of you got that joke. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Friends, I want to finish with this. Think about how foolish it would be to navigate a boat based on your feelings. To have a GPS and a compass and a map and a rudder and to ignore all of them entirely to sail based on your own eyes and the inclinations of your heart. To sail based on what feels right. 
This past week, I, I, was, I did go fishing uh, on the same boat that I sent down the canal with no propeller. And this time we had the keys and we got out there, but the GPS doesn't work. Like no GPS. So I got no way to see where I'm at using electronics. And the sonar works half the time. Usually the time you really need it is when it doesn't work. And we're fishing in the Shalot River, which is really just a bunch of series of oyster bays and, and winding creeks that wind to and fro. And without a GPS and without a compass, we're built, me and my brother-in-law and his buddies are entirely at how much do I know? How much do I remember the contours of the bottom of this creek? How far can we go back? Now imagine my brother-in-law decides he's just going to do it by himself. He's just going to figure it out bit by bit, run it full bore based on his own instincts. Think about how foolish we would be if you can imagine having a pilot on board with all the experience and success. You can imagine how foolish you would be to ignore them, to lock them in a bedroom and to sail your own way. And yet that's exactly what so many of us do. It's exactly what Stephen is accusing the Israelites of having done in Acts chapter 7. He's saying you were given nautical charts and maps and a rudder and the law given to you by angels of all things with fire and miracles and water from rocks and manna from heaven. You were given a temple and God's very presence in your being and you ignored it and you trampled it and you went your own way and you worshiped the sun, moon, and stars. And so God gave gave you over to the desires of your heart and it led you into exile and slavery and persecution. You watched your sons destroyed and your daughters taken from you. And yet you and I do the same over and over again. We claim to believe Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is our savior, but we ignore his words. We never read his words. They stay on our bedside table. They're the last box unpacked when we move. We pray and we ask God for direction and we're surprised when we don't hear choirs of angels singing God's answers back to us. When we have the Cabela's catalog and People magazine stacked on top of God's word to us. And so Hebrews here is saying, look at the punishment that the people in the Old Testament received when they ignored God's laws and directions. Look at the punishment that the Israelites received when they trampled on the revelation given by angels. And now you want to ignore the Son of God. You want to bury his words beneath hours of HGTV or Fox News. Really? The preacher is, is, is boggled here. He says, really, you're not at all scared of that decision. Did you forget that the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference? You treat the greatest gift ever told with indifference. You neglect it. Don't you know the damnation you were in for if you neglect it? Don't you know that naturally all that can happen is you shipwreck your life? Because you've ignored gift after gift meant to guide you to joy and peace and serenity. Friends, the greatest danger to us, the greatest danger to us is not necessarily the big vilest sins, but the danger of drifting. The danger of neglect. People drift away from Jesus for one of two reasons. And I'm going to work through these really quickly. The first is simply neglect, apathy, or indifference. Doing nothing. And old preacher's joke, preacher's story, uh, that there was once an unbelieving man who died. And when they went to his house, they found his will and he had left his farm to the devil. And so they convened a bunch of elders and they tried to decide, how do you give something to the devil? 
Like This man willed his land to the devil. How do we do that? And so after arguing about it for days and days and days, they decided the best thing they could do is let the land lay fallow, let the weeds grow and the house tear down because the best way to give something to the devil is to do nothing. A preacher named Charles Spurgeon says, if a man is in business, it is not necessary that he should commit forgery in order to fail. He can fail by simply neglecting his business. If a man is sick, he does not need to commit suicide by taking poison. He can do it just as surely as by neglecting to take the proper medicine. So it is in the things of God. Neglect is as ruinous as, as, ruinous as distinct and open opposition. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In this world, Adam Barnes, another preacher, points out that most of the calamities of this life are caused by simple neglect. By the neglect of education, children grow up in ignorance. By the neglect of a farm, weeds grow up and briars. By the neglect, a house goes into decay. By neglect of sowing, a man will have no harvest. By neglect of reaping, the harvest would rot in the field. No worldly interest can prosper where there is neglect. And so, why would it be so in religion? There is nothing in earthly affairs that is valuable that will not be ruined if it is not attended to. And why may it be so with the concerns of the soul? Let no one infer there, therefore, that because he is not a drunkard or an adulterer or a murderer, that therefore he will be saved. Such an inference would be as irrational as it would be for a man to infer that because he is not a murderer, his farm will produce a harvest, or because he is not an adulterer, therefore his merchandise will take care of itself. I'm afraid, friends, that there are plenty of people in hell, who were simply indifferent to the good news of the gospel. People who refused to attend to the warnings of the Bible and the offer of Jesus because they were distracted by the cares of the world, by business as usual. But there's a second reason, and it's strong currents. And I don't have time to give you uh, everything I want to give you, but there are strong currents running all around us. I'm reminded of a scary story about an uh, English explorer named William Edward Perry who took a crew to the Arctic Ocean and they wanted to go as close to the North Pole as anyone had ever been. And they got off on a big ice flow and they started to tretch north on what they thought uh, was a solid ground. And they took their bearings and found their, their, uh, their latitudinal line. And then they marched for days as as hard as they possibly could. And after they had gone for days, they calculated their position again and realized they were further south than they were three days ago, despite having marched as hard as they could north because the piece of land they were on was floating south. Friends, this gives me two, I think this happens to us in two ways. First, I see it in addiction. People who, are in, who love Jesus, but they're enslaved to alcohol or rage or food or anorexia or pornography or work or narcotics or Facebook or online dating. And friends, if that's you, like if, if you love this stuff and you're here because you've given your life to Jesus, but there are parts of your life that are raging out of control, that are unmanageable, that you have tried to quit doing something again and again and again and again and again and again, and you can't. 
then I will encourage you with every fiber of my being to submit to Jesus by submitting to a program of discipleship called the 12 Steps. Find one. They're built on Jesus' teachings. That's why they work. Not because Bill W. was a genius, though he was a really good man. Second, I would say is societal drift. I'll illustrate this one time, and then I want to wrap up with our last application. Last week was a holiday called Juneteenth. Some of you may have heard of it. Many of us probably never have. Juneteenth Juneteenth celebrates the end of legal slavery in the United States. You see, after the Civil War, the slaves in Texas had not learned of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, and they had not learned of the surrender uh, at Appomattox Courthouse in April of 1865. It wasn't until June 19th, 1865, Two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, months after the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, that the Union Army uh, rode into Galveston, Texas, and announced to the slaves in Texas that you are compl- you're free, that, that all slaves are, are free and emancipated. Friends, you know what scares me to death about American slavery? Is that I would have owned one, or 10 if I could have afforded it, and I wouldn't have seen the problem. Honest, thoughtful, hardworking, Bible-believing slaveholders marching towards Jesus with everything they possibly could. Men who love Jesus a whole lot more than me, smarter a whole lot more than me, more virtuous, but on an ice flow that was floating south. No pun intended. Friends, I think we live in culture that does the same where you can march as hard as you can towards Jesus and if you're not aware if you don't know how to measure if you don't know how to take stock of the times you can end up further away because you weren't taking into account for societal drift I think of church sanctioned use of torture and this week this week if I'm honest if I just am vulnerable I'm confused how we can separate children from their parents to discourage immigration. I hurt this week. I don't have a better idea. I don't know. I'm not trying, I'm not trying to make a policy decision. I just hurt. I hurt because I know a man who was separated from his father. And there, separated from his father, he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he knew the answer. The answer was because you were separated from your heavenly father. And so Jesus was willing to leave his to come and rescue you. And bring you back home. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Let's pray. You can come home by just saying yes to Jesus with simple words. Jesus, I have been apathetic and indifferent 
but I realize now you love me more than I love myself, and so I surrender to you. I make you my king, and I trust you to save me. I will build my life on your teachings from now till I die, and I trust them to give me joy and serenity, to hold me fast even when the waves are big and the storms rage, even when popular opinion goes against me, even though mother and father forsake me, even though sickness ravage my body, I will trust you. Amen. Not because we have to, but because we 